0: really know who's buying your products? If not, you could end up paying a high price for your ignorance. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Exporters have long had to deal with the issue of suspicious parties acquiring their products, especially in the worlds of high tech and the military. But the challenge is becoming a lot more difficult to manage. There used to be just three denied party lists that companies had to check before a sale. Now there are hundreds. The list, maintained by Descartes Systems Group, Inc., alone incorporates some 350,000 names covering a broad range of government agencies and industries. My guest today is Ken Harris, Descartes' head of Denied Party Screening. He's going to talk about the difficulties of identifying the ultimate buyer in a global, multi-tiered supply chain. Turns out you could be in trouble for selling to a company that's not even on a Denied Party's list. Even saying the wrong thing at a conference can get you into hot water. And the penalties, both civil and criminal, can be harsh. So what to do? Harris has some tips for how companies can protect themselves and comply with the law and talks about what additional challenges they might face in the future. So here is my conversation with Ken Harris. Ken Harris, welcome to the program.
1: Bob, thank you so much.
0: Paint me a picture, please, of the situation now as it exists with regard to denied party screening, basically what it is in terms of what companies are facing these days.
1: Bob, it's an incredible challenge and companies are screening in a variety of different ways. When we first started this way back when, uh, there were three lists and they changed very infrequently. So monthly updates were considered doing your due diligence. And now our company monitors approximately 550 different URLs and websites. So the lists are changing on a constant basis. Uh, there's new entries, new, uh, each industry has their own concern list. Um, so it's quite challenging and overwhelming uh, for companies.
0: I have heard that there's something upwards of eighty different denied party lists, either in the U.S. or abroad. Is is that accurate, or wh- how many would you say roughly that companies need to be thinking about?
1: You bring up a great point here, Bob. And you know, this is a, you know, it's it's funny because in a lot of ways, there there's no legal set of lists. And in fact, there's no legal requirement that says you have to screen, okay? There, there are le- legal rules that say you can't deal with denied parties. So screening becomes a de facto requirement, if you will. Um, and so the various vendors and you know have accumulated these lists and throughout the years, it's, it's generally recognized and accepted that there's a core list of offerings that companies screen against. And, and the vendors get very creative with the way they count lists and it can, tends to get bloated. So instead of focusing on the number of lists. I think it's it'd be better to look at the number of entities, the number of records. And we're upwards now of about 350,000. Uh, different records that make up our, our comprehensive list. And that goes through, you know, lists that companies recognize, the Commerce Department, State Department, EU consolidated list, um, to industry specific lists. The healthcare industry has excluded doctors and physicians. The banking sector, you know, concerned about, uh, politically exposed persons and things like that. So denied and restricted parties can mean a lot of different things depending, you know, where you're sitting.
0: Just what is the definition of a record when you said that many records? Uh, what does that word mean exactly?
1: So we're talking about the individuals, the actual entities that make up, you know, the various lists, so see. the number of parties uh, that are on the respective list.
0: It has been getting, well, I don't know if I want to say worse, but there, we have seen an increase, have we not, in the number of, of lists and denied parties in, over the years, and I'm wondering why that is.
1: Well, actually, a lot of things changed after 9-11, right? And uh, back in the early 90s when we started this, as I mentioned, there were three lists, and they changed very infrequently. Um, obviously, the, the Internet and to be able to distribute the information. In the old days, if you went up to the Treasury Department, they would actually place the announcements on a heater outside the front door, and that was the way of letting them know that there had been a change. There was an OFAC release. And now with the internet and um, the various countries producing their own concern list and these industry specific lists. So the healthcare sector, the uh, business and uh, monetary units have their own sp- specific concern list. Uh, so countries are, um, companies are really concerned about who they're dealing with. Um, the onus the is being put on the company. Um, it's gotten so crazy that you can get in trouble for dealing with a sanctioned party that isn't even on somebody's list. This really came to the forefront last year with the Russian-Ukraine sanctions, where uh, OFAC's 50% rule came into play. So a company might not be on the list, uh, but because they are owned, by someone that is on the list that has more than 50% ownership, then they become a de facto denied restricted party. Uh, so now the pressure is on our clients to do further research. Okay, I did a search on Bob Bowman company, and he's not on the list, but now i got to find out who might own Bob Bowman and if they are on any of these lists. And that's very frustrating um, and a big challenge for our, our customers.
0: Ken, what is OFAC?
1: OFAC is the Office of Foreign Assets Control. It's a Bureau of the Department of Treasury.
0: Okay. So I take it that the, just in the United States alone, you have different agencies, each with their own lists. And I guess, has there ever been any attempt to coordinate them or consolidate them, or are we just stuck with having to, have, having to deal with these individual government agencies
1: on, an, uh, on a one-to-one basis? The government has made attempts, and they actually do have a consolidated list that users can go in and download the respective list in, into one database. So this is what comprise the U.S. list. Okay, um, But again, there's, there's three parts to this, right? There's the, the list, there's the tools that you use to screen your names, and then there's sort of the gray matter, the area. I mean, a lot of companies have tried to automate this process and remove compliance people from the equation, but that's just never going to happen. And just the reason for that is the nuances within the respective lists. So even here in the U.S., even within one government agency, the Commerce Department, you have three lists, and they're, di- they're different levels, if you will, of denied restricted parties. So you have entities that you can't sell paper clips to. You have other companies that are on the list. You just need to get a license firsthand. And then there's companies that maybe have not signed up for pre-license check or post-shipment verifications. And there's just an extra step of due diligence that needs to be performed. So even if you get a hit on someone that's on a that list, uh, you have to drill down further to see what are the actual li- legal implications. You might even perhaps be able to do business with them in some form.
0: So when you use a term like gray matter, I guess you're talking about sort of human discretion and judgment and sort of beyond just whether a, a name is on the list or not. Is that what you meant?
1: Absolutely, and all the business rules that go into it, because at the end of the day, there's two objectives here, Bob. You know, there's not, you don't want to obviously deal with anyone on any of these lists, but balance against that, remember, you know, we've got these huge companies with these large customer masters, and they're screening it up against that 350,000 list of parties of concern. So you're gonna have a delta, right? You're gonna have potential matches. So you're gonna need someone. Our computer system will be able to spit out, oh, and your NCR company, matched error bad guy ncr company. Okay, but it's going to take someone like yourself to go in and say, "Oh, wait a minute. You know, we're dealing with National Cash Register Company out of, you know, Ohio, the AT&T spinoff where Ken's list, the NCR is the bad guy, National Council of Resistance." So, the system thinks it's a potential match, but in reality it it turns out to be a false positive. So one of the big challenges that our companies face is that because of the limited information that the government provides, and it's not their fault, these are terrorists, they're narcotic traffickers, there's not a lot of good information on each of these parties. There's not a lot of good address information. You might get date of birth, place of birth, things like that. Uh, So the company needs to do uh, their due diligence and further investigation to determine, hey, wait a minute, this NCR isn't really the same as the bad guy NCR. To what extent
0: does this go beyond finished products and finished goods and drills down to components and even raw materials that you have to be looking out for on this list? Is all of that kind of embraced
1: by this? Absolutely. Anything, you know, above the 25% U.S. origin on equipment and also technical data too, Bob. That information is controlled and a release um, even here in the U.S. If you're giving a seminar or giving a talk and you're disclosing controlled information, that's that's a deemed export and so the licensing rules and restrictions come into play there as well. So, I mean, we have customers all over the board screening their visitors as they come into the front, you know, their front desk, uh they screen attendees to their seminars. There was an instance a couple years ago of the Jardine House in the UK being on the list so it forced companies to start screening the hotels that they were going to be staying at. Thing where there's financial transaction uh, that 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 wasn't was taking place.
0: Wow, a lot of companies might not realize that this relate, relates to just opening your mouth, <laughs> you know, not just uh, not just sending out a, a you know a, a particular product or something like that. That's really interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so, what are some of the fines, some of the penalties that can uh, arise as a result of failure to observe these regulations?
1: So, violations are subject to both criminal and administrative penalties. Okay, penalties can reach up to twenty years imprisonment and one million per violation. Um, administrative penalties can reach eleven thousand per violation and one hundred and twenty uh, per violation in cases that involved uh, items for national security reasons. Uh, PayPal was fined by Treasury OFAC uh, earlier this year in April for $7.7 million. That really covered about 486 violations over a period of time. So, you know, the, it, it's scary. Um, there's, you know, the, like I said, these lists are changing daily, um, lots of transactions. The good thing about this is that companies that maintain compliance, that demonstrate what the government refers to as a robust compliance system, is often a mitigating circumstance, even if you happen to let something slip through. I think it's important to realize you know, sometimes companies think, oh, we have this online store and somebody mistyped something, so we didn't screen it properly. Oh, my goodness, we're going to get in trouble. And that's usually not the case. There's, there's never been a prosecution when a company actually performed the screening. Okay, What usually happens is the repeat offenses. Usually the government has visibility through the AES system. They'll know, oh, wait a minute, you're shipping something to someone on the entity list. She shouldn't be doing that. And they will contact the company and let them know. And that company, you know, decides, oh, we're going to still keep shipping. So when you see these violations, you see the the DHLs and, you know, the PayPals and the other violations that have taken place, you'll see it's usually over a period of time. It's repeat violations and a clear intent uh, to not follow the, the regulations. Does
0: the government have strict criteria that define what a robust compliance system is or is it merely what you just said, just actually screening uh, against the list?
1: You know, they have a guideline system set up and they perform audits. And so they'll be looking for a company that, you know, has a system that they're receiving daily updates. They're looking for an audit trail. So there's a precise logging system in place. They want to know that a particular name was screened to demonstrate the date, the time, what was searched upon, the rules that were used for searching. So that's what they're looking for. They want to be able to demonstrate, this company needs to be able to demonstrate, you know, that they perform the screening and they have the necessary tools to show that.
0: Yeah. One of the big lists that we hear a lot about is ITAR, the International Traffic and Arms Regulations. I'm wondering what's going on there. Is that toughening up too? Is that becoming harder and harder to comply with?
1: Well, obviously there's that concern because we're dealing with items on the munitions list and so we're you know need to be very careful there. And so the companies there are even put under a, a higher level of scrutiny. There's additional lists that they need to screen. And the challenge there, Bob, is one that we touched upon earlier with the fact that so the one of the lists that the ITAR control companies need to be aware of is the, the GSA, the General Service Administration, the barred parties. And that's made up made up of about eighty thousand individual names. But so that's again another challenge, so you know, another list, I've got 80,000 individual names, so just think of it for a second, you know, you're a Fortune 100 company and you want to screen all your employees, now you've got to add, on the other side, these 80,000 individual names, just imagine the number of hits and things that you go through, we have a lot of clients that screen their employees on a regular basis and so it's just, you know, the common names, like the the, the no-fly list we all hear the stories of the 5-year-old boy that gets stopped because his name matches someone on a terror li- terrorist list I mean, there isn't a week that goes by, Bob, but I don't get a phone call from one that says, here, listen, I'm at, at, a, at this client's front desk and they won't let me in because my name is Wayne Smith and there's a Wayne Smith on the State Department's debarred list. And to be quite honest, that guy's out of luck because they're not going to let him in front door that particular day. I mean, I always tell customers, and I had written an article earlier in the year that said, the first thing you should always do is screen your own name because, you know, if you've got a common name, it's likely there's somebody else that's a bad guy that's there, and you just want to become well-equipped so that that person, when they go in and visit the customer, you, they'll be prepared. They'll say, yes, I know. Wayne Smith is on the State Department's debarter list. His birth date is this. Here's my driver's license. I'm not the same guy. You know, you basically have to prove I'm not this bad guy. So becoming well-armed and and the fact that the State Department does screen against additional lists creates an additional burden for those, those customers.
0: But they're not, that, they're not stupid enough just to say, well, your name is the same, so you're out. I mean, you can actually take steps to ensure proactively that, uh, that you're going to not get
1: caught up in that particular web. You can, but you have to understand that a lot of times the the people that are doing the screening, and and a lot of times the companies are under some strict guidelines. So they perform the screening, and they get a hit, and to be quite honest with you, it's an exercise in CYA. So if someone tells me, you know, okay, Bob Bowman's on a list somewhere, and you come in, you know, I'm going to err on the side of keeping my job. And I might not drill down or we've had cases where, you know, a lot of times our customers are dealing in uh, transactions where um, they're not making a lot of money on a transaction. So I've had customers say, even if I got a false hit. Okay, even if I got a hit on your NCR and I'm dealing with NCR, I'm making four or five cents on this transaction, I'm not going to take that extra step, that gray matter that we talked about earlier, Bob, I'm not going to invest the time in sort of reviewing it. It's easier for me just to not make the shipment. I'm not going to send, send, sell the good guy NCR because to, to prove that it's not the real entity, um, you know, I'm going to lose money on that transaction. So it's kind of, you know, guilt by association.
0: Wow. Okay, so you've touched on some of these points already in our conversation, but I'd like you to kind of take me through the process of just how do you protect yourself and comply with the law? What are the initial steps you take and where do you go from there if I'm a company that virtually knows nothing about this?
1: Sure, absolutely. So every company needs to assess their level of risk. Okay, you know, at the end of the day, it's likely more times than not that you're not dealing with someone on any of these lists. So a good first step always is to sort of take your universe, whatever that might be, customers, suppliers, vendors, franchisees, employees, whatever it is, and to do initial screening. And it's a lot easier to get on some of these lists these days. Again, as I mentioned, the level of controls have changed, so you might be able to still do business with someone, but as I said, there's 350,000 parties on these lists, and sometimes you know companies are surprised um, to see that you know an entity is on the list. aero Electronics is a good example. Aero Electronics is a name that we see a lot on our screening. There's one of the entities that's in the uh, United Arabs that um, is on the list. It's on the commerce entity list. So if a customer sends us their customer master, an Arrow electronics in the U.S. is on their list, it's going to produce a match. The gray matter comes into play and they realize, oh, we can do business with the office here in the U.S. We just can't do business with the office in the UAE. So my first suggestion is always, let's screen your universe. Let's do a snapshot, sort of a diagnostics exam here. Let's see where we stand. And then going forward, depending on the you know number of hits that you may or may not have, screen accordingly. So a lot of our clients have adopted um, what we refer to as our dynamic approach. It's, a, it's basically a reverse screen and one of the things we discovered is that companies were rescreening the same names over and over again and you know you look from the company's perspective and they really don't have a choice right i mean just because my customer wasn't on the list at 6 a.m. this morning when the daily federal register came out doesn't mean they're not on the list today at noon when the OFAC releases its names or at 4 4- PM when the EU list comes out. Um, so I have to keep screening my names over and over again. So we created a service called Dynamic Screening that basically reverse screens your master list constantly. So instead of you screening your same customer three, four times a day, depending on how many transactions you have, we'll reverse screen it once. And if they ever show up on the list, we'll notify you. So the sum total of that is, instead of screening 100,000 transactions a year for a company, why don't we just screen the two or 3,000 trading partners that make up those, those 100,000 transactions? So that's sort of a Mm -hmm. foolproof way of doing it. Your, Your customer list is reverse screened every day. That definitely falls into the category of a robust compliance program.
0: Who in the organization typically should be overseeing this? Is it someone at the C-level or what? where in the organizational chart and what is the title of that person who should be managing risk in this area?
1: I tell you, Bob, compliant, export compliance is usually the red-headed stepchild uh, in, in companies a lot of times. It is all over the place. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll see it in legal. Just had just came out of a meeting. It was under the marketing department. It's one of those things in smaller companies that just sort of comes up. We developed this new product. Who's in charge of export compliance? You know, it's a jump ball and somebody grabs for it. Um, As a general rule, I mean, we usually see it either under logistics or legal, but um, we've seen it in a variety of different places
0: it's the same question kind of comes up in terms of uh, supplier compliance going upstream in in risk as well and i'm just wondering if there should be one person in the organization who's responsible for risk in both directions or whether this is such a discrete specialized area that you really need someone who is exclusively you know aimed at export compliance
1: yeah, you know, it's someone that can get the attention of the CEO and CFO with the headlines and the ones showing that you know these guys are going to prison. Um, it's usually that type of person that can get that kind of attention that usually you know ends up with the duty.
0: And then, of course, you know, you mentioned uh, the kind of the proactive type of screening, but keeping a good export compliance program going, as opposed to putting out all this energy and excitement at the beginning and say, okay, the problem is solved, and and here we go, and yet things do change, and so advice on how companies can can keep this robust system going on a you know on a forever type basis
1: you, you've got to get upper management you've got to be all in on this i mean because the rules are changing every day they're getting more complicated so ongoing training um you know you farm this out um so you have this one person that's all on board but they're going to be relying on their outside people to do the screening I mean, I've seen companies, you know, give access to their salespeople and their marketing people, and you know, they're just not going to take it as as serious. They're not going to do anything that could possibly jeopardize a, a potential a potential sale. So it's getting everybody on board, understanding the implications, and also using it as a competitive advantage. We have a lot of clients that use this uh, to their benefit, and it's a sort of a badge of honor. So. Again, these lists are changing. Um, It crosses a lot of different sectors. So getting upper management and getting a commitment and ongoing training um, to growing that compliance program and showing that, listen, you know, we want to keep our name out of the front page for those reasons.
0: There have been many instances in the past where violations resulted as a result of a product changing hands and being sold and resold many times and to the point where it gets so far in in the distance, it's almost impossible to imagine to be able to predict that, I would think, from the standpoint of the original supplier. So what are the limits of one's ability to comply with these regulations and when does responsibility end given the fact that this can occur?
1: You know, and and there have been rules in the last couple of years that brought into play distributors and uh, forwarders and other intermediaries into the transaction. So, again, what the government's looking for are are red flags. Did you have, I mean, yes, ultimately the, you know, principal party is responsible, but if there were conditions that the forwarder should have realized, uh, that this was a transact, a suspect transaction, then they would be called out on that. Again, it goes back to CYA. So they might give their distributors, their resellers access. Listen, if you're going to move our product, you know, we're not going to have visibility to the, uh, you know, who the ultimate end user is, but we want you, if you're going to move our product, you need to screen on our, on our behalf. So here, here's access. We're paying for you to have access to this tool. You're moving my product, you need to screen it on our behalf. So that that way if I'm ever audited, you know, I'm gonna come in with open palms and say, Listen, I, I did the best I could here. Again, that's the robust compliance program that we need to demonstrate.
0: What does the future hold in terms of denied party screening and export compliance? Anything big coming down the pike and what, what what's the what's the world gonna look like a few years from now?
1: You know, it's, it's, it's scary in a lot of ways because there's just going to be more and more lists. OFAC in April announced that they're going to come out with a cyber-related list for malicious cyber enabled contact and behavior. You know, they released that in April. They haven't released any new individual names. It's really concerning. And also this this behavior in the past with the 50% rule and that you're responsible for names that aren't even on an official list. It's putting more of a burden. To me, it's the, the biggest gripe I have because I see customers every day that want to do the right thing, and so with this Russian-Ukraine related situation, we have all these companies now that are having to spend additional money hiring consulting firms to go out and do this research. So instead of having the government agency OFAC that has the power, has the resources to do the research once and then publish the information, the burden's now put on the shippers. So the bigger companies are going out and have to research, you know, oh, is company A owned more than 50% by any denied restricted party? And so now you have a collection of all these companies, their efforts uh, to compile this, this type of list. So it's just sort of these general catch-all provisions instead of government doing the work once and publishing or sharing the information. So that's really scary to me where you have these companies that want to comply, but the information is not given to them. They have to go out and find it themselves.
0: Such a complex and challenging world, but Ken Harris, I want to thank you so much for helping to put it in perspective and giving us some really valuable information as to what companies can do to comply with, these, uh, with this rash of rules happening all over the world. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Bob, thank you.
0: That was my conversation with Ken Harris of Descartes. Talking about how exporters can guard against selling their sensitive products to denied parties. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my think tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter at scbrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.